cancer patients are often faced with circumstances related to their disease that aren't openly discussed. In Tabuti, the Fight CRC podcast, we delve into those topics that are sometimes considered controversial, trending, or just plain interesting. To suggest a podcast topic, email answers at fightcrc.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Tabuti podcast. We're here for a very special beginning to a new ambassador podcast series where we'll be interviewing members of our newest ambassador class to find out a little bit more about their story and help us connect to some of our resources. So our first guest for episode one today is, you'll probably recognize her from a lot of the other great things she's done for us, your favorite neighborhood colorectal cancer surgeon, Dr. Carmen Fong. Carmen, welcome. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Excellent. So Carmen, why don't you give us a little bit more background on yourself? Yeah. Um, So I'm a colorectal surgeon. I live in New York City. Um, I operate out of Mount Sinai Hospital at several different locations. And my my main focus is colon cancer, but I actually do a host of different things. So I do both benign and malignant colon and rectal cancer diseases. And then I do a lot of anal rectal pathology as well. So um, benign conditions such as like fissures, fistulas, uh, hemorrhoids. And then also um, I actually have like a very large anal cancer population. Um, I'm married. I have, my wife is an infectious disease physician at the, um, who works for the government, and we have two cats. Excellent. Well, as a fellow cat lover, that's always exciting to hear. That's great. So, uh, Carmen, why did you decide to become a Fight CRC ambassador? Yeah. No, I... It's actually, I first started seeing Fight CRC on my Instagram feed, and I just loved everything that you guys are doing in terms of raising awareness and your social media presence is so strong. I think part of it is really, you know, the graphic design and, you know, being present on all the different platforms. So I knew that if I, you know, wanted to work with you guys, you guys would help raising their awareness for colon cancer. Um, And then the second thing was that I just have so many patients throughout the years that have, you know, that I've treated for colon cancer and, you know, I really wanted them to have a great resource. And so I wanted to be kind of visible and be there for them. And, you know, by joining the organization, I think I've actually, you know, been able to give them a lot of the resources that Fit Fight CRC has given me. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. You're in a bit of a unique position because usually with ambassadors, we have a lot of patients, caregivers, as someone in the actual industry of care for colorectal cancer, what's kind of unique about what you're, what you're bringing to the table for this ambassador class? Yeah. So, you know, honestly, at first I kind of felt like a fish out of water because I felt like I wasn't a patient I wasn't like a caregiver, you know, with an immediate relative or friend. Um, although I have had friends with colon cancer. Um, but at the same time, I do think that I have somewhat of a better perspective of, you know, what the surgery side of, you know, colon cancer treatment is like, and especially being able to answer questions that way um, and being able to help with maybe that type of resource as well. And, you know, I, I completely value when, when patients and their caregivers, you know, tell me their side of the story and, you know, what they went through because their, their perception 
is completely different from mine. You know, they're sitting in the office, they're waiting 45 minutes to see the doctor. You know, the doctor explains something for like 10, 15 minutes, and then, you know, they get a brochure and they're out of there. And so I love hearing that side too. And that has been another benefit of being an ambassador is just, you know, all my, hearing my fellow ambassadors stories. That's great. Yeah. What, what are some things that have really stuck with you? I mean, you mentioned some resources, some stories and things like that. What's really given you a lot of energy in this today? Yeah, I think we, it, maybe it was you and I, and we had recorded um, something else or, or it was a focus group talking about the surgery, a uh, little pamphlet thing. And just some of the different things that, you know, my colleagues have said made me think, you know, how can I explain this better to my patients, you know? And because when you're, when they're coming in, you really aren't thinking about the long-term process. Like, um, so for example, you come in, you know, there's like the pre-diagnosis stage, like there's a diagnosis and then there's like post-diagnosis and then what that treatment entails. And I think generally, you know, from the percent from the physician's perspective, we're like only talking about the treatment, right? And then, you know, a surgeon is like only talking about the surgery. But now that I know that people really want like a comprehensive view, not that I didn't do it before, but now I am way more cognizant of being like, okay, you know, these are the kind of also social factors that you need to be aware of when you're going through treatment. Cause it's like, if you're living alone, you might have trouble you know, getting transportation to chemotherapy, or like if you're, you know, not so, don't have such good dexterity with your hands, you might have trouble with like pouching your ostomy. And, and so just being more cognizant of those things, and then being able to offer like those resources, in addition to like the surgical treatment plan and the adjuvant chemotherapy plan. If that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's good. I mean, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different factors that, that play into it, obviously from the patient and caregiver experience. So having someone who's a surgeon, who's, you know, on the other side of things, be more connected and understand more about what that perspective really represents is, is a really powerful thing. So let's talk a little bit about surgery, you know, certainly, (laughs) you know, we, people have access to Googling different colorectal cancer surgery options. We're even going to do a webinar here in a little bit. So if you're listening to this podcast sometime far in the future, come check out our webinar archives for for the overview of surgery options. But as far as, you know, really thinking about, you know, this is the Tabuti podcast, right? You Mm -hmm. know, even though we're doing this ambassador podcast series, it wouldn't be Tabuti unless we talked about some taboo subjects here. (laughs) So what what happens when a when a patient you know is given some surgery options and and they and they don't want to have surgery? Do they have to get surgery? Like, what is it like from your perspective when when people come to you and from your professional opinion, surgery is the best option, but they just don't really want to do it? Yeah, so that it's like a very good question. So nobody has to have surgery. There. I I always tell people in the end, you know, your body is your own body and you have control over it. And I, I do think it is a little empowering that way to make sure that people who now have a cancer diagnosis and already feel like they've lost control of, you know, their entire lives have heard that, right. That your body is still your own. You have control over what is done to it. Now, that being said, um, there are certain recommendations and, you know, standards of care that we follow. And so if the right thing to do is, is, is surgery, then I will offer it, but then also, also 
offer alternatives. So, um, for example, if you have like a right colon cancer, right, and you're like a very, very, you know, elderly individual, other comorbidities, um, things like that going on, and your family's not sure that you would make it through surgery, right? Even if it's like a fairly straightforward um, right colon resection, and you know, you probably won't have an ostomy at the end, and um, but it is going to be either laparoscopic or like a very quick open surgery. Um, you still have the stressors of the anesthesia on your heart and lung, on your heart and lungs. And so I tell people there is a risk and there is benefits. And, um, if the family doesn't want to go through with it, they really have to have a family meeting and sit down and discuss all the options. Cause then you can have like other less good options, such as let's just do chemotherapy for a while or, or do nothing. Right. So I do present, I do present patients with that. And most of the time they will hear that the right thing to do and maybe the best chances of survival are usually surgery, especially for like stage one, stage two cancers um, and, and go that route. But if they don't, there's no, I actually think there's no forcing them. I also like to offer that, like, if you're like, well, you, you Googled a bunch of stuff and you heard this and this and this, if you want to get a second opinion, like by all means, definitely do. Um, and most people will, will trust you. Like once you make, um, kind of make it so that you have laid out all the options and you're not hiding anything. I've found that people are, are going to trust your opinion somewhat. Sure. Yeah. That's, it's, it's definitely good to be able to level with people and understand not everyone's getting that from, you know, their, their providers, from yeah. the surgeons that they talk to. So in that same vein, you know, not all surgeons are created equal, right? You know, some have different trainings, some have different equipment mm-hmm. and that they're able to have access to, to perform different types of surgery. If people are, you know, kind of shopping around for different surgeons and different options. Do you ever get offended when so, when a patient that you're working with is interested in trying to look at another option that may potentially be out there or another surgeon? <laughs> no, I, I actually, I actually tr- I don't get offended. And the thing is like, it's so funny because, you know, the same way surgeons come of all types and patients come of all types, I think. And so if, if they are feeling more comfortable with shopping around before they settle on one thing, um, I think I'm confident enough in my abilities that, you know, if they want to come back, they'll come back. And the, the one thing I can always offer though, is I will always tell you the truth. Like I will, um, I will, I will level with you. And if it's not a good idea, I would tell you not to do it. Cause I think there are also a lot of patients too, who maybe don't need surgery and then want surgery. So then that's like the other side of the coin that I have to sometimes talk them out of surgery. Um, and I do think as a surgeon, right? Whenever, you know, whoever's listening to this podcast, if you're talking to a surgeon, you should, you should, you can Google them. You can find out where they went to medical school and stuff, but the same way that you would with like, you know, meeting friends and like, if you like them and you get a good vibe, I think that's probably more important than whatever training they've had. And, and, um, I don't know what the secret dark web says about them on the internet. I don't know (laughs) because, (laughs) because I do think that, And I like to tell people like I'm a surgeon, but as much as possible, I actually try not to operate because it's not without risk. Right. And I love to operate, but I only operate for the right reasons. So you should ask them that, you know, when you meet somebody for the first time. Interesting. Yeah. You'd, you'd expect the surgeon to be in the surgeon role and always see surgery as the answer. So it's it's not always the case. Yeah. 
but for, for as much as I love to operate, I tell people, you know, it's not, you know, it hurts. It's not, it's never completely benign. And so when I, when I can, I won't, but when I cannot operate, I won't. <laughs> Although most times you, you are forced to, so. And speaking of what a surgeon does and doesn't do, I mean, again, not all being created equal and having different capacity and different other care team members that help support them in the work they do and everything like that, but all mm -hmm. things considered, what can someone really expect a surgeon be able to do for them and to, as a way to help support them through their journey beyond just the time that they're under the knife? Yeah, that's, that's also a very good question. So <clears throat> you're right. Cause the, the majority of the time, like we do spend like, you know, standing for in the operating room for like 16 hours a day. Um, and most surgeons will have at least an office staff or a team of physicians, assistants or medical assistants, you know, nurse practitioners who will be available. And, and I say that because I know that there's a lot of like preoperative and postoperative stuff that the surgeon, you would want them to answer the question, but they might not necessarily be sitting at their desk and answering phone calls. So that is another thing, like to make sure that you, when you call, you have a good rapport with whoever is answering their phone, like their assistant, their PA, because that might really be your main point of contact for pre and post-operative um, questions. Um, so they need to have that support staff. And then, because that will also be you know, like your point of contact for other questions as well. So like, what can I eat afterwards? You know, where can I get some, you know, um, a, care, a, care, a case manager and some social worker assistance, um, transportation, VNS, things like that. So that all, I, that all I think, you know, should be offered by the surgeon's office. I do think some of it is limited, you know, because of their, you know, limited capacity and their staff. Um, and then otherwise, I think patients actually do a very good job of mostly advocating for themselves. And then if they can't get like certain ostomy appliances through their surgeon, which again, I think they should, um, calling their primary care provider and getting them that way. And we know that sometimes that communication between specialists and surgeons and primary care can get a little convoluted at times. Yeah. And, and because yeah. do, you have, do you have any recommendations for people as far as how they can like what to ask their surgeon for that can help communicate that important information or otherwise how to best connect those two elements together so that everyone's yeah. on the same page. Yeah. Th and this is actually, I think very simple, but most people don't do it, which is uh, when you first meet the surgeon, tell them who your primary care provider is and like, tell them who your main, your main physicians are, whether it's like your internist or your cardiologist or your endocrinologist, whoever. Um, but that, and then the other thing is like, if everyone's in the same hospital system, it is always easier because we have the same EMR and can look at each other's notes. But I find that when patients come in, they know who referred them and they know why they're referred. I will always send a note back to that, you know, person who referred. And so there is that constant communication. I love it too, just because I'm not like looking for hours to see who their primary care provider is so that I can be like, Hey, can you watch this person's blood sugars like post-operatively and blah, blah, blah. Um, if the, if the patient knows that that's actually great. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different things too, that, you know, happen, like you said, after the whole engagement, yeah. the communication and everything like that. Yeah. And you're someone who's definitely had 
a lot of experience talking with patients and what they've experienced after surgery and everything. You know, what are, as far as with different surgical options that are out there and different types of recovery, what are some things about the recovery process that you know are always just good things to consider right off the bat at the beginning as people prepare for a surgery? And then if you wanna expand upon that, some things afterwards as well that people can really do to help set themselves up for the best possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So it depends on the type of surgery. And I'm going to start with like, if if we did like a robotically assisted or laparoscopically assisted surgery versus, you know, an an open surgery. So robotic laparoscopic cases, we tend to have shorter length of stay. You know, I tell people you're in the hospital, maybe between three and five days, if everything goes well, And it's always funny to me because um, we can do like four or five hours of, you know, of work and then dissect out the colon, take out the tumor, put everything back together. And when we do it robotically, you're left with four little incisions on your belly and maybe one small three centimeter one near your bikini line, which is usually well hidden. Um, And patients do so well and they don't see, and they see these tiny little incisions and they're like, ah, you know, everything went well, which is true. And I can go resume my life like absolutely normally, which I want you to, but maybe not like three days later, go to the beach type of thing, <laughs> which people have done. Um, so cause, just because like there's all this internal healing that still has to happen. So what I usually tell people is three to five days and then normally, right, like up to two to four weeks of no heavy lifting. And that's because the abdominal wall, the fascial stitches have to heal. So no heavy lifting. And then the swimming thing, you know, like I said, over the summer, people love to go to the beach and they're like, oh, we're going to the beach like two days after surgery. And I'm like, I know you feel great, but you know, just wait a few days. I don't want you to break any stitches or anything. Um, so the anesthesia part. So it's a long surgery. You're under anesthesia for a long time. And again, it's the stress on your heart and lungs. So I tell people that you won't feel completely yourself for at least a couple of weeks. And it's actually the, the equivalent amount of stress to like running a marathon. Um, <laughs> so I, I like to tell a joke. How do you know someone during a marathon? Cause they'll tell you. Right. So I, I ran the marathon in 2017 in New York. And afterwards I was like, completely blasted, like exhausted for two weeks. Like did not feel like I could move. I was like tired and, and I haven't been through a big surgery. I've been through small surgeries and I actually imagine it's the same thing because the stressors on your heart and lungs and muscles are all the same. So you will feel fatigued and stuff for about two weeks until you gain your strength back. And then the whole process wise, um, uh, I like to tell people like, give me like six months, give me six months to a year. This is going to be you know, six months to a year of your life where you're dealing with this sometimes longer, but you know, the initial like acute therapy stages, like six months where you're dealing with surgery, surgery, recovery. If you have like a ostomy of some sort that needs to be reversed, a second procedure, and then that recovery and then chemo and stuff so that you kind of have like a ballpark of, of like, Oh, this is not going to go on forever, but it's also not like two weeks and you're going, you know, right back to, to being normal again. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know about if, what you think, but I kind of think maybe that helps to have like a, you know, ballpark of what that path looks like. Yeah, definitely. It's good to know kind of thinking, thinking out a couple of weeks, 
six months and everything. It's good to know what not to do. So what about some things that people can do? Like, and let's say right afterwards, you know, often we check in with people about different things, you know, having things set up in the home so that they can be comfortable, you know, having certain, you know, depending on what their recovery is, like different food, drinks, things like that, that are, that are, that will work for that recovery situation. What are some things too that you, that you know you can add just from your experience to the, like some immediate things you can do to help support right after? Yeah, um, you can absolutely walk around. So like I actually encourage walking around, you should walk around. Um, and I think maybe initially you'll be tired, you'll be a little sore, you'll wanna sit in bed, but the more you walk around, you know, it, the faster you'll heal. So it improves your GI motility um, and it improves your, your cardiovascular endurance. So walking is good. Um, you can go up steps. So like people ask me a lot, like, can I go upstairs with my incisions and stuff like that? And you have like a second floor walk up. Uh, that's not ideal, but you can go upstairs. And I've actually even, and you can actually take like long rocks around the block and, um, you know, go up hills if you need to, too. Diet wise, there's usually no diet restrictions, like no, no firm diet restrictions. For the first two weeks, at least, I tell my patients to do a low residue or a low fiber diet. So that's generally like softer foods, like chicken, fish, cooked vegetables are okay, um, pasta, uh, potatoes, things like that. Um, just really no green leafy vegetables. And again, that's just because of the new connection in the colon so that it's nothing that there's no roughage kind of rubbing past it. But after that, you can actually go back to like a completely normal diet. And um, the main thing is, is staying hydrated. Like I always, I always tell them like, even if you're not hungry, like drink fluids, drink water, tea, Gatorade, broth, whatever, but just stay hydrated so that you're not having, um, you know, all this kind of hard stool sitting in your colon. And of course, I'm sure a lot of this changes with ostomy and ileostomy and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So. Yeah, yeah. Although the although the low residue diet initially is is pretty standard. Great. Yeah. So it's good to have some things, some things to do, some things not to do, and everything. Recovery yeah. is a big part of it. So for those caregivers out there in mm -hmm. the audience listening to this, you know, are there ways? that you know that a caregiver can be particularly effective in supporting somebody as they're going through recovery and then both in the home and also as a liaison, perhaps with the care team and that support, because, you know, as we know, it can be really overwhelming for the patient themselves, you know, and having that caregiver there to help is certainly great in, in both contexts. So I'm wondering if you can help us out a little bit with that. Yeah, no, that's actually also a great question. Um, I mean, most people have like a great support system and I mean, there are one, there are those who don't and, um, and then, but the ones who do. So caregivers, I think helping to make phone calls when the patient's not feeling well enough to do so, I think that's a big part of it. So, and I think that sometimes patients will sit there and be like, uh, you know, I feel fine. I feel fine. And something's not fine. And if I always say like, if someone else is raising an alarm that you don't feel like should be raised, like maybe there's a reason for it. So at least check in. I think that's completely fair to do. Check in with your surgeon, check in with your physician, um, oncologist, whoever. Um, and then preparing foods. I think that's also fair to do. Making sure like everything is easily accessible, like, um, you know, going to the bed from your bed to your couch, um, taking long walks. And then the one thing I, 
I do think is uh, picking up medications, I think is super helpful so that the patient doesn't have to go pick up medications, you know, immediately after. So you can always try to call in if you want to and make sure you have the medications already at home before, before your family member or friend comes home. Nice. Yeah. That's good. So we're, this is, this is all super helpful information. We're going to try out something a little bit new with this, uh, with this beginning <laughs> of this ambassador podcast series, a little fun way before we conclude here to put it out there. So let's do a little myth busting here. Let's do, let's check some things out. You know, like I said, mm-hmm. I, I offered a couple taboo things to you yeah. about, you know, people, do you have to get surgery? Do you have to go with your surgeon that you have? What, yeah. am I missing? what are some things that you know from your side and your perspective that people might be hesitant to do because they think it's not the right protocol or might otherwise be taboo that you can say as a surgeon, like, no, here's how you can have some agency, be yourself, do what you need to do in this situation. I think people think that ostomies are pretty taboo. Like, I, I mean, we, we talk about this a lot, I think, at FITCRC and then, you know, just amongst our, ourselves, you know, as physicians. And um, apparently, Frank Sinatra had a colostomy. I just found this out <laughs> today. <laughs> I didn't know that. Interesting. <laughs> fact fact check me, but one of my anesthesiologists said he checked today because we were talking about this and he had a colostomy for diverticulitis. So as taboo as it may be and you know as image distorting as it may be sometimes it's necessary and so i i always want you to question whether it's completely necessary but also at the same time realize that the colostomy might be the difference between you getting very sick like down the line or you know being stable and then just needing a second procedure um, to reverse the ostomy so uh at least from my standpoint i always tell people like i don't want to do it I don't want to give you an ostomy. I don't want to do it, but if I have to, I will. And if it's the safe thing to do, I will. And, and that should be the only reason is that, you know, we're protecting a new connection in your colon. We're protecting something else, you know, protecting you from having intra-abdominal sepsis, for example. So, and it's not because it's not because I want to give you an ostomy (laughs) just because it's a safe thing to do. That's the first thing. And then the second thing is, you know, people come see me and they really don't like to talk about bowel movements and, I still think, you know, it should not be tabooty to talk about your bowel movements. Um, this is what I do all day long. So when I, when people come see me and I'm like, how are your bowel movements? How many bowel movements have you had? Like, what do they look like? And it's not weird. You know, really, I, I listen to this all day long, like 20 times a day. And it really does make a difference if you tell me if they're liquidy or they're hard, or you're having like six or seven bowel movements a day and, and wiping too much, or you're having like one hard stool and it's kind of like difficult. It does make a difference in what I, in what I can do for you. Great. Always, always like to hear it's okay to talk about poop. This is what we yep. do. Yep. <laughs> this is what we do. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Carmen, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been really amazing. Got lots of good information. We're super happy that you're in our current ambassador class and will be an ambassador for years to come. So thank you yeah. so much for, for joining us and we'll definitely see you again sometime soon for some other fun activity program or media presentation. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Mike. All right. Thanks, Carmen. Take care. You too. Bye. Thank you for joining our Tabuti podcast. Remember that this information is for educational purposes only and all medical questions should be directed to your doctor.